Good morning, everybody. Well, it's just been a fantastic time this morning, being able to praise our great God for his faithfulness and his majesty, and especially to remember our Saviour in that time of communion. Well, I want to start this morning by telling you about somebody else, someone of great renown. After suffering through and triumphing over a terrible disease, he set up a foundation to help others who also suffered from the same thing he did. He personally poured millions of dollars into this cause and he promoted it everywhere he went. The afflicted hailed him as a hero, as a conqueror, some even a saviour. And this was made all the more poignant by the fact that not only was he a great success story himself, but he had suffered through the same thing that they were going through. His name was highly respected and he was appraised for his amazing feats wherever he went. He is Lance Armstrong. That changes things, doesn't it? Cheating was uncovered, lying was brought to light, and retribution was revealed. Lance's name is now mud, and all the good that's been being done through, um, against cancer through the Lifestrong um, Foundation has taken a massive hit. His praise and adoration was unjustified. It was misplaced, and it was wasted on an illusion. Well, this morning, I want to turn our attention to someone who is God, our great God, who is truly worthy of our praise. Our praise will not be misplaced on God. He does not change. And our hero worship of Him as the King of the universe will definitely not be wasted. So if you're not already at this great little psalm, 113, turn with me there. I've titled today's message, Praising our great God. Let's read it together. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forever. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? who is enthroned on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. He raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. Amen. Well, before we delve into this text, let's just consider its importance for a moment. This uh, little psalm here is the first of six known as the Egyptian halal. Okay? Halal is just the Hebrew word meaning praise. And the reason it was referred to the, as the Egyptian halal is because in the next psalm, 114, it deals with the Israelites' deliverance from Egypt. In particular, it had its focus on the Passover, where the lame, lamb was um, slaughtered, right, and the blood was put on the doorposts, and the angel of death 
passed over. Well, traditionally, the halal was sung at the great feasts and still is to this day. The first two, 113 and 114, are typically sung before the feast and the other four are sung after the feast. So it has quite a bearing for Christians with communion to this day as we see Jesus as the Paschal Lamb, okay, our Passover. Well, not only is the psalm um, part of a halal, but it's also sandwiched between Psalm 111.12 and Psalm 119. And those three psalms are all acrostic psalms. So that means that every sentence in the first two starts with each successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Whereas Psalm 119, each paragraph starts with a Hebrew letter. And this is important because these first, um, or the two preceding psalms to this one, they both start with the call to praise. Praise the Lord. They are halal psalms as well. And so this morning, we're going to explore three reasons for praising our great God so that our own praise will be enhanced and deepened. More specifically today, if you want to uh, strengthen your praise, to deepen it, to improve it, to make it mean more to our great God, then you need to understand firstly, in verses 1 to 3, that God's praise is demanded by his identity. God's praise is demanded by his identity. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. This is an imperative, okay? So what we have here in verse 1 is imperative praise. Verse 2, we're going to have timely praise. And verse 3, universal praise. We'll get there in a moment. Praise the Lord. This word halal, um, if you said praise the Lord in Hebrew, it would be hallelujah. Okay? Halle, praise, lu, the plural for you, and ya or ja, short for Yahweh. Okay? Hope that makes sense. And if you want to put it literally, it means all of you praise the Lord. He is to be the object of our praise. Not any idols that we set up in our heart, not any other thing in life that distracts our attention. Our praise should be reserved for the Lord. But what is praise exactly? Well, one writer says, praise is primarily a reciting of the attributes of God and the acts of God. And then the worshipper rejoices because God is the kind of God he is and because he does the things he does. Thus, our thoughts and our words, we use them to recite who God is and what he has done. Who he is is revealed in scripture. And what he has done, yes, some of that is revealed in scripture, but also it takes on a personal meaning for us. What he has done in my life. What he has done in your life. All you servants, praise the Lord. This identifies that we are the subjects. We are the ones who are to be doing the praising. It's emphasizing the relationship here. We are servants. Or more importantly, more accurately, we are slaves. Okay? 
We have been taken from the slavery of one kingdom into another. For the Jewish people here in this um, uh, psalm, it brought to mind their deliverance from the house of slavery in Egypt. Clear. Um, So much history floods back to the mind for them. Redeemed out of Israel and now willing slaves of praise. All of you praise the name of the Lord. I just want to read um, another psalm, a verse. verse, um, Psalm 148 verse 13 it says, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His glory is above earth and heaven. He gave his name in Exodus as I am who I am. When Jesus used that and said, I am he, what happened to the soldiers in the garden? Fell over, right? Such is the power of his name. There is no other name so compelling and yet so devices as God's. People who do not love God have his name on their lips all the time, but it's for curses. Our lips should be used to praise the name of the Lord. But why does the psalmist use this um, imperative command three times in parallel here in verse 1? Well, while it may be a veiled reference to the Trinity, praise the Father, praise the Son, and praise the Holy Spirit, would it not be more because we are prone to forget him? Because we are prone to idolize other things? I believe it is. Lots of Halal Psalms here in the book of Psalms all emphasizing and re-emphasizing and encouraging and drumming it in. Praise the Lord. Keep this as your focus. This repetition should prick our memories and warn us against exalting anything else. Think of the great Shema in Deuteronomy um, chapter 6 and a little bit further on from the start of that in verses 12 to 15. The text says, Watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slaves. You shall fear the Lord your God and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you, for the Lord your God is uh, in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you. A solemn warning. Well, interestingly, the very imperative command that's given three times here in verse 1, in the Hebrew, it carries the idea of to cause to be praised. In other words, all of you must cause the Lord to be praised. This is not mindless obedience, folks. This is not turning up on a Sunday and just reciting things mindlessly, reciting the attributes of God. This has to be heartfelt. This has to come from the heart. This has to mean something. Fair enough? We must be intentional and ensure that our praise to God 
has a cause. God must mean a great deal to us if we are to greatly praise him. Well, in verse 2 it talks of timely praise. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forever. God's name is blessworthy, is it not? When we speak of God's name, it must not be in vain. It must not be careless, but it must be spoken with attitudes of kindness and awe and fear. From this time forth, you know, if you haven't ever started praising God, or if for some reason you have stopped praising our great God, now is the time to start. From this point, go out of here today and make it a point to start incorporating the praise of our great God into your life. Really important. It will change your whole perspective on life besides giving God the glory. You know, our time is numbered, our days are numbered. When we are here on this earth, going through the struggles that we go through, when we praise God, it means something. But when we get to heaven, all this struggle, all the sin and the weights that so easily trip us up, will not be there anymore. We'll have the memories to praise God, but it will be different. So now is the time to praise our God. We may not feel like it. Okay? Don't let feelings dictate what you do in life. Okay? When you deliberately praise God, the feelings follow. Joy comes in the morning. The whole point is this of this is to take our focus off the temporal struggles and difficulties of this life and to sit, set our vision on God, on the eternal majesty of his might and greatness. Now David and Job, they were great examples, right, of praising God amidst their trials. You can have a look at a couple there, like Psalm 69 verse 1 to 3 and verses 29 to 30 later if you wish. If you're taking notes, jot that down. You know, soon these trials of life will be over and we will forever serve, praise and worship him. Well, not only is it imperative praise and timely praise, but verse 3 talks about universal praise from the rising of the sun until its setting. More accurately, it should be translated from the place where the sun rises to the place where it sets. In other words, it's talking about location. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what your situation is. Praise God. Hallelujah. If you're going to a country where churches are banned, Find other ways of collectively praising God. If you're at work, in the classroom, stuck on one of these new expressways, praise the Lord instead of grumbling. 
Whatever your situation, whether you're in the dentist or the doctor's chair or whether you're facing lots of other strife, set your vision on God. Set your affections and your praise on Him. It will make getting through this life a whole lot easier as a side effect. When God's identity means so much to us, then we won't hesitate to answer the call to praise him. No matter of the time of day or where we are, no matter the situation, we will keep our heartfelt praise flowing to him. But it's not just that God's identity demands our praise in time and space. Rather, if we want our praise to be enhanced and deepened, then we've got to look at a second aspect here. We need to understand in verses 4 to 6 that God's praise is warranted by his greatness. God's praise is warranted by his greatness. In verse 4 it talks about praising his glory and power. The Lord is high above the nations. There's no nation, no military, no ruler who even compares to God. Jewish leaders, or readers, sorry, no doubt thought of Egypt as they read this passage. This great, mighty nation that God humbled with plagues. This army that followed them through the Red Sea and were drowned. No one can take on God and win. No one can possibly compare to him. All nations crumble into the annals of time compared to the everlasting greatness of God. He is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. His power is incomparable. His glory is above the heavens. Psalm 19 verse 1 to 3 says this, The heavens are telling the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. We've been talking about that this morning. Talking about the stars and the greatness and men who study them. You know, we look out there at all there is in the creation and we go, wow! And we eventually run out of words to express how great the creation is. But you know what? God's glory is above all of that. Even the witness of creation, its testimony runs out of things to say. It can't even touch a drop in the bucket of God's majestic glory. He is just so far above and so other than anything we are or the things that he has created. Psalm 8 verse 1 to 4. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. What is man that you take thought of him? We're nothing compared to him. He is far, far above. The greatness of the power and glory of God warrants our praise. And we must be intentional about incorporating 
the praise of these attributes into our honour of God. Well, secondly, in verse 5, we have praising his transcendence and sovereignty. Here's another couple of attributes that we can incorporate into our praise. Who is like the Lord our God? This is a powerful rhetorical question, is it not? There's no answer. The obvious answer, though, is no. But what if you do try to compare God to other things? Well, Isaiah had the privilege of writing chapter 40. And it's a great chapter to read. I encourage you to read it all tonight before going to bed. He, Isaiah makes comparisons of God to idols. He makes comparisons of, of God to rulers and stars and other such things. Verse 18 says, To whom then will you liken God, or to what likeness will you compare with him? To whom then will you liken me, that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Verse 28, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. Theologically, this is describing the transcendence of God. What is that? Well, this is the attribute of God that refers to being holy and distinctly separate from his creation. God, that God is transcendent means that he is above the world and comes from outside of it. He comes from beyond. Charles Spurgeon said, His divine attributes are many, of them incommunicable and inimitable. None of the metaphors and figures by which the Lord is set forth in the scriptures can give us a complete idea of him. His full resemblance is borne by nothing in heaven or earth. Well, you say, well, wait a minute, what about Jesus Christ? Didn't he come down and reveal God? Didn't he declare the Father to us? If we have seen him, have we not seen the Father? Yes. But how much of it? Think of Philippians chapter 2. Jesus emptied himself. So we're getting a glimpse of Jesus in his combined humanity and deity. But we're not getting the full picture of his deity. We would all be dead if we saw him. Think of John in chapter 1 of Revelation. And he saw the glorified Lamb of God and he fell down like a dead man. Powerful, powerful stuff. Nothing can compare with God. Who is like the Lord who is enthroned on high? First Timothy six fifteen to sixteen said, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in light unapproachable, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honour and eternal dominion. Amen. Think about Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. He said, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, 
For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? The concept of God being seated on the throne above in heaven refers to his universal kingdom and therefore to his sovereign right to reign and make free choices as he so decides. Well, praising God's greatness is warranted by his attributes of sovereignty and transcendence. And this understanding helps us to go further. In verse 6, praising another couple of attributes, his imminence and omniscience. It says there, well, if we continue at the start of verse 5, who is like the Lord, into verse 6, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and the earth. Let's ask this question. Is God's throne so high and so lofty, is he so transcendent and so glorious in unapproachable light that he takes no further interest in his creation? That's the God of some religions out there. Set everything in motion and then hands off. God is not like that. No. Figuratively, it says here, he humbles himself to behold the things in heaven that he created and earth that he created. He stoops to the events that are going on in heaven and studies them. The angels and saints who have already passed into heaven. He has to step even lower to earth to see what's going on down here. This verse 6 is demonstrating his omniscience, his all-knowability. He knows everything. But more importantly, this verse focuses on his imminence. Okay? That is his closeness, the idea that God is present in and close to and involved with his creation. You know, God cares for us more than the sparrows. He knows everything about us. He knows the number of hairs on our head. Psalm 33 verse 13 to 15 gives a fuller description of this. The Lord looks from heaven and he sees the sons of men. From his dwelling place he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all. He who understands all their works. God is intimately concerned with us and he cares. He is not too high and lofty that he does not have a great care and love for us. Hallelujah. What an awesome God. Well, despite these amazing attributes of his power and glory, his transcendence and his sovereignty, there is something further. 
there's more. We've looked at two great reasons. The third great reason for our praise to be enhanced and deepened is to focus on God's that God's praise is justified by his actions in verse 7 to 9. God does not just interact with mankind in the spiritual realm of the soul, like fashioning our hearts. No. God actually becomes involved and he demonstrates his mercy, his grace and his blessings in the physical world through practical means. Specifically, God can reverse the fortunes of the poor and the needy and the barren. He can reverse the fortunes of the rich and the famous and the mighty. God can do all things to his sovereign will without anyone being able to say anything against him. And it's important here that these three verses are not intended by the author to be a blanket statement to all believers that they will all escape from their problems. He's not saying that every poor believer is going to get rich. He's not saying that every needy person is going to be fulfilled. He's not saying that any, every barren woman is going to give forth and have babies. No. Rather, these three verses are emphasizing God's capacity and historically that he does do these things. It's proven. You only have to think of um, many people in the scriptures who have gone from these previous conditions to one of exaltation. Well, praising his mercy in verse 7, he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. Yes, there's a poetic parallel here between the poor and the needy, and between the dust and the ash heap, but there's also room here for these two different situations. The poor are those who are all dusty from having to sit by the side of the road and beg, just to make a living. The needy, another broad category of people, who went outside the city walls, who went to the dung heap outside where all the refuse and the rubbish of the city was burned. And they would scavenge among that to try and find anything of worth or anything to eat. Amazingly, God can and he often does change the lives of people of his own free sovereign choice. He shows moving mercy. He shows that these ones don't have to stay hopeless and he changes their lives physically. But you know, this verse has deeper undertones. It is often throughout the scripture that when it talks about ash heaps and dunghills and the condition of people in this state is that it's a reference to sin. It's a reference to the condition of the soul. And it may be that there is somebody here this morning whose sin is like that stinking rubbish heap outside the gates. 
Maybe they are scrounging around trying to get through life, but the weight of sin is hopeless. Well, God is full of mercy. And he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. First John chapter 1, verse 9 urges confession because he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God wants to have a proper relationship with you. He doesn't want to remain aloof. This is why he sent Jesus, his own son, to the cross. This is why... Jesus died there. He died to take your place. He died to cover your sins with his death, with his blood shed. God loves sinners, but he hates the sin. And this morning, if you hope to have any kind of future worth living, you must turn away from sin and you must run to Jesus. God sent his son He was in the world and the world was made through him, but the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Jesus is the Passover lamb. And his blood can cover your sins. And the angel of death will indeed fly over. Well, God's mercy in that verse is then backed up by his attribute of grace in verse 8. To make them sit with princes of his people. Now, would it not be enough for God to just raise up poor, needy, barren people and just give them some kind of normal life? Would that not be enough? God would be good, yes. He would be just, yes. But God has grace as well as mercy. He gives us what we don't deserve. He freely gives to sinners who are saved every blessing in the heavenlies and the promise of eternal life with him. Think of, well, just uh, last night um, we were doing our family Bible reading and we were up to the story of King David who had just been crowned king. And he said, is there anyone left in the house of Saul whom I might bless? And Ziba found Mephibosheth. Okay? He was hiding away. He was a cripple in both legs. This is the heart of God. David said, give him all the land that his grandfather owned, Saul. All the servants, and there were 35 of them, are going to work for Meshavitah. It's a tricky one. They are going to make the land bountiful, plentiful, and the income from it will support Mephibosheth. So he is good. But... David shows even greater grace and he says, come and sit at my table every day and eat with me. Isn't that amazing? Here is Jonathan, now seated with David's own sons, the princes of the new royal family. Isn't that amazing? God definitely does do that. 
He not only has acts of mercy, but he has acts of grace. He gives us far more than we deserve. But hang on a minute. Just because God holds back for any reason, does that make him any less worthy of our praise? Well, did you know that these two verses, 7 and 8, are almost a direct quote from Hannah's song of praise to God? 1 Samuel 2, verses 7 to 8, also says, The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honour. But notice the contrast. Okay, He makes low the rich. He lifts those that are poor and needy. It goes both ways. God is sovereign and he can choose. Therefore, whether God holds back blessing or, where he, or whether he liberally pours it out, he is still justified in receiving our praise because all his ways are wise and his sovereign dealings with us are perfect. Praising his blessings. I hope we have many blessings in our lives for which we can praise God. Verse 9 says, He makes the barren woman abide in the house, a joyful mother of children. Now, this is a sensitive topic. Even if you just think ancient Near East, barrenness was not a good thing. Barrenness, says William Hendrickson, was about the worst thing that could happen to a woman. Across the many intervening centuries, we can still hear Rachel saying to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 15 to 16, has this to say, The leech has two daughters. Give, give. There are three things that will not be satisfied, for that will not say enough. Sheol, number one. The barren womb, number two. Earth, that is never satisfied with water. And number four, fire, that never says enough. The desire to bear and mother children is a God-given desire. And it's an instinctively strong one. The yearning is always there. So it doesn't usually help when people insensitively say, don't worry, and then quote verses like Psalm 127 verse 3, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Or Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 14, You shall be blessed above all people, there will be no male or female barren among you or your cattle. Well, that last verse there, that's specifically referring to a covenant promise made to the Israelites. If they, as a nation, obeyed God, then there would be no barrenness. Barrenness cannot be a reason for someone to say, oh, 
That must be because of some sin. Don't ever utter those words. No children doesn't mean God doesn't bless or reward the righteous in other ways. And neither should the examples of Sarah, Rebecca, Samson's mum, Hannah, Elizabeth and many others. Those examples should not be used to preach at a barren woman and say, you just need to have more faith. This is because they were, these women were, either a special part of God's covenant people where he was promising a great nation through them or it was because God was using them in a miraculous way to give birth against all odds when it was past time so that judges could be raised up to lead his covenant people. These were special miracles, not common grace miracles. And yet, God still does step in. He still does do common grace miracles. Verse 9 here makes that quite clear. Not as a promise, but as a statement that this is what God can do. He can make it possible for the barren woman to abide and feel and be at home in her house. He can bless her with motherhood. Whether this is natural children or fostering or adoption or some other way in which her sense of motherly instincts are fulfilled. So whether it's poverty, real needs, or singleness, or barrenness, or any other trial in your life, God has your best interests at heart today, and tomorrow, and the next day, if you are a true believer. He cares, and despite his greatness, despite his transcendence, he is intimately involved in your life. When we go through the storms, we need to praise our great God, regardless of the outcomes. I love that song by Casting Crowns called Praise You in the Storm. Let me just read you the chorus. And I'll praise you in the storm, and I will lift my hands, for you are who you are, no matter where I am, and every tear I've cried, you hold in your hand. You never left my side, and though my heart is torn, I will praise you in the storm. The last line of this great little psalm says, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. We must all praise the Lord, regardless of our situation, regardless of our location, or what time or stage we are at in life. Because God doesn't change. His name is blessed. His attributes are great beyond our comprehension. And his choice of actions in our lives are always justified. Hallelujah. 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 Let's just pray. Oh God, how great you are. There is none like you. You are far above the heavens and nothing can be compared to you. Nothing can touch you. You are so holy, so mighty, so strong. And yet your love is so great. 
your care and concern for sinners, your love for your sons and daughters is immense. And we thank you for what Jesus achieved at the cross to make it all possible that sin could be forgiven and that we could have a relationship with you. Deepen our praise, O God. Help us to understand more about you so that we can enter into an even deeper relationship with you. Thank you, O God, for all that you have done and all that you will do. You are to be praised forever. Amen.